What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Twenty has been a huge year for protests around the world. Uh, and, and right now, as we enter in the final stretch of the year, there are two really huge and significant protest movements that uh, we want to spotlight here on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We're going to talk today about the anti-police brutality and police violence protests in, in Nigeria and the anti-authoritarian, anti-monarchical protests currently going on in Thailand. They're two movements that seem separate and distinct and have totally local and regional causes, but play in primarily to uh, a lot of themes that are important in understanding protest movements around the world right now, and uh, in general, why it is that it feels like there's so many convulsions going on around the world. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. So do I get to protest this thing? I mean, you can. I don't know exactly what you'd be protesting against. Work, but look, let's let's start off by talking about Nigeria. Um, these protests are, are really significant, right? And they they center around one anti-police unit in Nigeria, the Special Anti-Robbery Squad or SARS, which I think is is somewhat confusing. But no, for this episode, we are not talking about the respiratory illness, but the anti-robbery police squad. Uh, Alex, why don't you give us a little bit of the the backstory as to how this particular group of police became so controversial. Yeah, so we actually have to go back to 1992 to understand SARS. Basically, it's around that time in the early 1990s that this force, which was originally 15 members, was created. Basically because throughout Nigeria, there was uh, an explosion of crime and of robberies and, you know, the, the national police force, the federal police force, wanted a tactical, somewhat elite unit in order to combat this. And these folks were... You know, again, the 15 or so members were plain clothes, unmarked vehicles. They were, their job was to go around and, you know, stop these groups before they committed any serious crimes or, you know, catch them in the act. Uh, over time, this unit grew and became more important, but there was a pretty big problem, which is for, for myriad reasons. One is a lack of community policing, really, or cultural community policing, uh, something we'll get into later um, as part of it. They are underpaid 
and you know not part of the community what you're seeing what you've been seeing over the last couple of years is that they have been extorting money from the people they've been trying to protect they have been beating people there are allegations of torture and and, and other kinds of uh violations and so since it's been going on for years now uh mixed with a bunch of other issues you're now seeing a massive 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 social media pushback against this unit and it's uh, leading to the protests we see today. Yeah, and just to to kind of add on to to what you said there, especially on the extortion part. So, you know, there was this really uh, great video that Deutsche Welle, DW, the German news outlet, did interviewing a bunch of the Nigerian protesters. And and one of the the people they spoke to is this guy who I believe was a taxi driver, and he's showing these injuries that he has to the interviewer. And these injuries are from a separate violent incident that he was attacked, um, apparently by some people he was driving around in his taxi that's unrelated to the police. But he then goes to this SARS, to this this anti-robbery, you know, task force police squad to report this crime and basically say, look, you know, I'm a victim of this crime. This happened. Can you please go, you know, investigate this and find the people who, who did this to me? And they turn around and say, sure, but you have to pay us for it which, you know, is just kind of like a really stunning moment. He says, uh, you know, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says it was kind of like being killed all over again. Um, you know, and he's essentially saying it's like it's adding insult to injury, right? So you, it's not just that this this organization is brutal and, you know, torturing and, you know, doing kind of all this violence and acting with impunity, but it's even worse. It's like insult to injury, right? Like they're also just literally extorting money from the very people they are being paid and are supposed to be protecting. So it's just a really kind of ugly situation. But what actually seems to have kind of kicked off this, this most recent wave of, of protests against SARS, um, there was footage, there was a video that went viral of the SARS, of the, the robbery squad beating a man to death. And this video was rapidly shared on social media. And, you know, it's very similar in some ways to what we've seen in the United States, where, you know, there's this kind of systemic, you know, police violence or, you know, systemic issues that are experienced, you know, by different communities kind of all around the country. But when you see a video like this, it often is like a really like stark, you know, catalyzing moment that really just kind of brings everything to a focal point and gets people out into the streets. And so this video seems to have kind of kicked off this like latest round of campaign um, on social media and in protests using the hashtag end SARS. It's worth noting that uh, much like this video becoming a sort of a stand-in for broader problems with the SARS unit in general, uh, SARS is itself a stand-in for broader problems that Nigerians have with their police force, right? It's not just about this one unit. That, that's the focal point for the demands. But the actual concerns are, are, are much bigger, right? And it's, it stems from the organization of the Nigerian police system itself. Uh, starting in colonial times and continuing through independence, uh, the police were set up as a national gendarmerie as opposed to local policing of the sort that you see in the United States and, and ironically, the United Kingdom that set up the colonial regime in Nigeria. And the reason that the British did things this way, that is to say, instead of having people who like work in and live in a community, have people who are from different parts of the country who are deployed to regions and then they police there, almost like a military occupation rather than you know, actual local policing of the sort we're, we're more familiar with. Uh, the reason that that was done 
is because they didn't want people to be favoring their local groups. It made colonial administration easier when you have people who are not responsive to local communities, but rather they're national authorities. So the point was to not deploy people locally in a way that would cause them to embed in their communities. This has proven to be a disaster, at least in the Nigerian context. Uh, The reason being that you get people who have no connection to the people they're policing, no interest in the communities, and who see their jobs uh, as, as a vehicle for personal profit and personal support and, and, and you know, advancement rather than protecting a community that they care about. Now, obviously, having local policing is not a, a solution to all of the problems with police and with the abuse of authority in general. It is one way, and you've seen this in community policing initiatives in the United States, uh, one way that the program can be improved, not saved and, and and made, you know, perfect, but improved. And the lack of that has led to this uh, unaccountable police uninterested in actually helping the people that they're supposed to be protecting and instead functioning, uh, in addition to doing what police are supposed to do, functioning as a, as a giant national extortion racket. Yeah, I think this is an incredibly important point. And I should give credit to um, Amaka Anku from the Eurasia Group and Hillary Matfest from Yale, who I spoke to before doing this about um, policing Nigeria. And I just want to reemphasize those things that were said because imagine, you know, if you're in the United States, imagine you are, uh, you live in Texas, right? And all of a sudden here comes these like police guys from Maine and they're going to try to police your community, you know, your community in Dallas. Yes, they could do some good things, but like they don't know the area. They don't know, um, you know, perhaps some some local groups that are helping with crime. They don't know certain actual crime groups. Um, they don't know where they hang out. They don't have sort of the institutional knowledge, let's say, or the local knowledge. And so spread this around in, in Nigeria, and now you have a problem, especially when it's a national police force where, you know, folks who are in SARS, if they are, uh, you know, in Lagos one day, they'll be in Abuja the next, or they'll be somewhere else um, another day. And if they are sort of removed from that force, um, or from a certain location, from SARS itself, they will go back into the national police force. And so uh, parts of the culture of SARS that have led to extortion, like we said, again, the, these two experts were both pretty clear that with, with, bo- with bad pay, um, right, and you give someone a gun, they're going to go up and go, hey, you know, I'll take your money now. This is really helpful. And it's seen as somewhat lucrative to keep doing that and, and pay for your own family. And so these sorts of moves, this sort of culture, and when no one's getting reprimanded, right, they go back at the national police force into perhaps another unit um, and continue to do that wherever they go in Nigeria. And so it's it's a larger systemic problem of the way that uh, policing is is a sort of a, in this sense, is a construct imposed. But there are many cases in which, like, police that are doing bad things do not get reprimanded and are just moved throughout the country. And so it's only natural, I think, for a bunch of Nigerians to go, wait a minute, we have a police force that keeps doing bad stuff, isn't getting in trouble, um, and is making our lives worse instead of better. We feel less safe with them in charge. And so... Now you've get thanks to the, the the miracle of social media and the perils of social media, uh, but mostly the miracle in this case, um, you're getting quite a massive movement under the hashtag and SARS. Yeah, and I want to add um, quickly. You know, I don't. I think you know we've talked about this community policing thing, but and your point is is absolutely correct in terms of you know an outside force coming in, not knowing the lay of the land, and you know in some ways that making them less effective. But I think it goes a lot deeper than that too, right? If you have people who are from the community, yeah. like this is the man or woman who is patrolling your block that, you know, 
a couple hours later when he or she is off shift, you run into them at the grocery store or the local cafe, right? Yeah. Or it's like someone who's, yeah. you know, whose mom used to babysit you after school in elementary school, right? Like they're embedded in the community, not just, you know, in a way that like they know who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. They actually care about that community because it's their home, right? I have a, a really good friend who's a cop. Uh, his name is John, and he, you know, lives in the community that he polices, and he's one of the best cops on the beat, right? Like, but he knows, like, he lives here. He's like, these are my people, this is my community, and I care about them. And he talks about it in that way, and it's a very different conception of policing, right? It's not like, you know, I'm going to go in and clean up these bad guys in this area that I don't care about, right? If, in your example of, you know, people coming from Maine to Texas, right? Like, how much would they care about how that community is left in the wake of their crime fighting operations, right? Who cares if I just did a bunch of really disruptive stuff uh, in this community? If I caught the bad guys, well, I'm headed out of here anyway next week, so who cares? Right, especially if they're 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 about to get redeployed uh, from Maine to Texas and then to LA, right? And right. then in the next you know year or whatever to Tulsa, right? It just it, it doesn't it doesn't matter in the same way to the people who were involved in it. I, I like using these analogies uh, to the United States and, and to, I think it's worth expanding it, right? Because it's tempting to pathologize what's going on in Nigeria in a way that a lot of Western commentators do as being like, oh, that's just uh, bad post-colonial governance in sub-Saharan Africa, right? This is what happens there. And like, it is true that a lot of the problems stem from uh, broken institutions and a weak state and chronic underfunding for the police. But it's also worth taking a step back and looking at things in historical context, right? Like one of the um, most influential scholars of, of Western European political development, Charles Tilley, developed a model of state building uh, that basically compared the process of creating a state to an a mob extortion racket, right? The argument is that you are building up a sense of authority in which you get the ability to tax people in exchange for providing security. It is not actually different from a mobster coming into your business and saying it'd be a shame if it burned down here, right? Got to give me some insurance money. I mean, it's different on on, on some levels, but at a, at a basic level, uh, it it is the same kind of thing, right? The asking of money in exchange for the provision of security, except I guess maybe the difference in the state context is there are real threats rather than fake ginned up ones by the mobster. Um, it's a useful analogy because it illustrates that the nature of political authority, uh, and, and not just in places like Nigeria, but really anywhere, is of a deal between the authorities to provide order and security in exchange for uh, some degree of revenue that they then use both to pay themselves and to provide whatever other services that they need to provide. In this case, the weakness of the state allows the police or or maybe causes the police on the individual level because they're underpaid and disconnected from the society they're operating in to extort money for themselves and not just for the broader state enterprise through tax revenue. But this is not this is hardly uncommon in the long run of, of the development of human society and human civilization. So for uh, this to be happening in Nigeria right now is not actually surprising. It's it's almost in the nature of state security forces. What's more interesting, to me anyway, is that there is a massive movement saying you can't do this, that this is bad, and we need our democratic political institutions to fix this problem. That's what I find particularly impressive and telling because it's consistent with a lot of 
uh, protest movements that you're seeing in other places too. Yeah, I think the one thing on, you know, the the mob kind of analogy or even just the, the state kind of broader analogy is that like, at least the mob theoretically actually protects you as long as you pay the money, right? Like, well, they're going to extort you. Yeah. Right. But, you know, theoretically, there is some sort of benefit. Um, and, and, and similar things when you talk about the social contract, right? Like, the government that you, you know, enter into this agreement with, that you pay taxes to, like, they're supposed to be responsive and to actually protect you. When they start extorting you and also beating you, that's when it kind of breaks down because— well, then why do you exist and why am I giving you my tax dollars, right? But I think this also speaks to even broader kind of beyond just the police issue. There's a there's a lack of trust in political institutions and government more generally in Nigeria that we're seeing now because um, over the weekend, they actually, the uh, inspector general, I believe, of police um, actually announced that the SARS unit would be dissolved, but the protests have continued. And there's a reason for that. And that's because... First of all, this NSARS movement has been going on for years. Like I said, this video was like one of the catalysts, but this isn't a new issue. Um, but for many times before, they have the government has made, you know, kind of promises to say, sure, sure, we'll disband them. We're going to get rid of them. Absolutely. And then they just didn't, and it didn't materialize, and it just continued. And so when I saw an interview um, with one of the um, kind of guys behind the NSARS kind of political social media campaign— and they were asking, like, well, the government announced that they disbanded this thing, so why are protesters still out there? And he's like, because we want to make sure it actually gets done this time. And it, you know, speaks to this lack of trust in the government, that they're, they keep making these promises and not following through. And so this time the protesters are like, yeah, no, we've heard this one before, and uh, it didn't happen, so we're just going to stay on the street, if you don't mind, until this actually happens. So it's really interesting to see that even though their main demand, you know, getting rid of this, this body it has theoretically happened, you know, they've, they've gotten their demand. They're still like, nah, we want some more here. We're not, we're not trusting you. And uh, like we said, you know, this goes deeper. We want more police reform. Yeah. First of all, uh, Jen Williams coming out as pro mob, I think is an important breaking <laughs> new story on the show. My roommate's been watching the Sopranos a lot, so <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's rubbing off. Uh, yeah. We have to come up with a mob name for you at some point. Jen, uh, little Tony Williams. Jenny two fists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we'll, we'll, we'll workshop that. Um, in all these news clips and also just on social media, there are videos of, you know, authorities, part of them, I'm sure, SARS and National Police Force going like, look, we've disbanded um, and you should be happy about that. They're like, yeah, you said that right. in 2016. You said that in 2017. You said nice that in 2018. Nice try. We've heard it before. <laughs> right. And so like, yeah, now you have um, uh, Muhammadu Buhari, who's the, the, the leader of Nigeria, say, look, we don't have SARS anymore. Now we have SWAT, a whole new team. Everyone's happy, Right. And be like, no, because again, the, the the problem is that the same people who are extorting, who are allegedly torturing and, and you know, committing human rights abuses are still going to be part of the Nigerian federal police force. And so that's why you're seeing calls for reform that are way beyond just NSARS. Um, you're, they're calling for like evaluations of certain, like mental evaluations of certain police officers. They are calling for an independent investigation as to the culture of policing in Nigeria. They are calling for reforms to the entire industry of, of policing and maybe moving more towards a community policing model. Uh, looking also at ties between like the federal government and the police and whether or not that should be severed in a sense, again, to move more towards a community policing model and perhaps uh, having more people live inside of the areas um, from where they work. So 
that's a big deal, right? That's calling for a lot of change. This is more than just end this specific tactical unit. Um, this is changed fundamentally the relationship between the Nigerian people and the authorities that that protect that protect them. Uh, and that is, of course, it resonates with some of the things that we're seeing in the United States and you're seeing around the world. But it, it is still a local story, and it's one that's been decades in the making. And now that we see this blow up in, uh, on social media and, and in person, we should be clear that um, for multitude of reasons, as with other countries, the Nigerian population is split along multiple different lines, you know, rural, urban, religious, ethnic, etc. And it's hard, especially also because people need to work for a living to come out for multiple days and protest. The fact that this has lasted yeah. so long, the fact that this has um, continued despite all the challenges, coronavirus, for you know, right, um, shows how deep this problem is and shows how passionate uh, the Nigerian people have, uh, are about it and how resilient they are in the face of uh, an immense challenge and, and good luck to them. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a crisis of political authority in another country, Thailand. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about uh, protests in Nigeria against police brutality and corruption. Uh, but now we're going to to a different part of the world, to Southeast Asia. We're going to talk about another big protest movement in Thailand. Uh, these protests aren't about the police. They are about the political system and, in many ways, the, the most important political institution in Thailand, which is the monarchy. Technically, Thailand is a constitutional monarchy. In recent years, uh, it has not been so much on the constitutional side. After a military coup, uh, the military has led in conjunction with the monarchy— in a kind of hybrid, pseudo-authoritarian, pseudo-democratic, pseudo-constitutional monarchy, pseudo-absolutist system. Uh, it's, it's kind of muddled. But recently, uh, since the summer, really, ties have risen up uh, in, in protests led by students against certain aspects of the way the system is functioning. Uh, Jen, why don't you walk us through... Uh, the the recent developments in Thailand and, uh, you know, starting with the summer and how this has evolved into such a significant movement there. Yeah, so it actually kind of goes back, well, I mean, you know, like any of these stories, it, you can pick any time to start. But um, in in late 2016, a a new king took power, right? Um, so this guy's name is Maha Vajir Longkorn. His dad, who was the previous king, passed away and he took his the son took power. He basically rapidly amassed power. He got these changes to the constitution that gave him emergency powers, allowed him to exercise his authority even when he's out of the country, which is most of the time. He mostly just hangs out in Germany. We're going to talk more about who this guy is and the uh, sort of bizarre facets of his rule. Um, but flash forward to March 2019. So the, these parliamentary elections are going to be held. A lot of people, especially like younger people and pro-democracy, you know, activists were really looking forward to these elections. It's going to be the first election since the military seized power in 2014 in that coup we talked about. Um, 
And, you know, people were really excited that there could be some, you know, actual democratic process happening. But then essentially the military made sure that all the vast majority of seats would go to, well, the military affiliated parties. Um, the guy who, you know, took power in the coup, this this general who led the coup, uh, he's reinstalled as prime minister. Then it kind of gets even worse. This pro-democracy party gets disbanded. They get accused of basically, you know, the illegal funding of the campaign. So they get disbanded. The seats that they won are all gone. Thousands come out in the streets of protest because they're really excited about this party, especially younger people. Then COVID hits, kind of interrupts the protests. And then in June, another prominent pro-democracy activist goes missing. This is part of a longer trend of pro-democracy activists living abroad, just disappearing or being murdered. And that was kind of the catalyst, you know, with people accusing, you know, the regime of, of cracking down on dissent abroad. So kind of all of these trends together just produced this massive outpouring of protests that have basically been going on since July. Maybe just to give a quick step back um, also on the situation is like Thailand is an incredibly important country for Southeast Asia. It is, you know, it has Bangkok, the capital, which is one of the big tourism draws. It is, has a massive GDP, a massive population. Um, the problem is over the last many years, it has also struggled economically in part because this sclerotic government that, that we will be describing in more detail um, hasn't provided the youth of Thailand with any hopes and, and, and dreams really or economic opportunity. And so when you now see like multiple coups, you see a king who's you know, wearing tank tops or crop tops in Germany while he eats ice cream and like basically has this uh, consort. And again, we'll get into this in a bit, but, you know, really doing nothing other than being a repressive leader, it it fuels a lot of stuff. Um, it fuels not only anti-government protests, but it's like, hey, this country with lots of promise that has handled COVID quite well, um, you know, can't seem to, you know, let me live my life and, and improve my life. And so you have these sort of two forces. You have these, hey, make my life better, just in general force that's been building very much in the youth of Thailand, mixed with, you know, anti-government, anti-monarchical stuff, which I understand. I am a royal subject um, of the King of Spain, and it is a stupid thing to be. Um, no one likes being a royal subject, I guess, although the monarchy was popular in Thailand for some time. But like, it is a there is a feeling among many people that like who in modern day history should be someone's royal anything. So uh, I I get that sentiment at least in, in, for me. The that's the important thing to to understand here, right? In the context of of Spain or, or Britain or another well functioning constitutional monarchy, right? You are technically a royal subject, but you aren't really bound by that in the way that we would have ordinarily understood being a royal subject in the past. Right, like you aren't, you don't get in trouble if you do something that the monarchy doesn't like, because the monarchy is the monarch is just the uh, the head of state, not the head of government. Right, they have basically ceremonial roles, and that is how it's supposed to work in some ways in Thailand. One of the major flashpoints in Thailand has been the Lay's Majesty Law, which is not something that's operative in a lot of constitutional monarchies anymore. But basically, it's a it's a law that says if you offend the person of the monarch or insult the monarchy as an institution, that you are subject to criminal penalties. And this has been used, not the law itself, uh, the, the government is careful 
at times to say we're not using that provision of the law, but other related ones. But basically, the idea that you can't insult the monarchy has been used to to justify these kinds of uh, arrests and crackdowns on protest movements and disappearance, uh, on, on protest movements and, and, and dissidents and people who generally don't like the current government, which is a fusion of interests between the military, the prime minister, Prayuth. He is often referred to as Prime Minister General Prayuth because he was a general in the military and the leader of the 2014 coup, right? Like, it's 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 that kind of regime that melds the electoral and the military and the monarchical to produce a system where a lot of people don't feel like they have a meaningful ability to affect change and where efforts to change things lead to actual state-backed repression that is causing a lot of young people who don't have the romantic attachment to the Thai monarchy that some of the older generations in Thailand did to uh, to take up these protests. I mean, so the protests started, originated out of a meeting in a dorm room in June. That's when some of the protest leaders got together and started thinking about this sort of thing, um, including offenses like censorship of a Facebook group that contained criticism of the monarchy. Then on, on August 10th, they issued a series of demands called the Ten Demands, which have become really influential in understanding the course of the protest movement, which include things like stripping the monarch of legal immunity, uh, revoking the lay majest law, and pardoning everybody who's been convicted under that, uh, abolishing all royal offices, forbidding the monarch from expressing political opinions, cutting royalist propaganda. There's a series of things like this. The point is the monarchy, which used to be a popular and legitimate institution in a lot of ways, a lot of people cared about and believed in, has now, people called it the third rail of Thai politics, has now become a flashpoint in part because of the nature of the specific king and in part because of its connection to a regime that more broadly lacks legitimacy among the Thai population. All right. That's all correct. And we've made some kind of references uh, here and there to who this king is and uh, some bizarre behavior. Let's get into it. So, again, the Lay's Majesty Laws are like you can't insult the king or the monarch at all. That's a bit difficult with this guy. So, this guy, uh, a few years ago, this Facebook video, this was when he was still the crown prince. His aging father was still the revered monarch who he himself was very problematic as a monarch, but at least he kind of pretended to, like, stay outside of politics and kind of maintain this facade of this, you know, uh, just figurehead. He's, you know, the just so you know, in, in Thai culture, right, like the monarch, uh, the king is literally this, like, figure of, like, it's like a Hindu-Buddhist paragon of dignity and virtue and morality, right? It's a, it's a very revered position that is very tied with morality and dignity, so this guy, then the crown prince, he at the time was 64 a few years ago when this Facebook video goes viral. And it's this like shaky video showing somebody's taking on their cell phone, clearly, showing him roaming around a shopping mall in Munich, uh, where he lived most of the time and still usually does. He was accompanied not by his wife, but by his mistress. So there's the first thing. He's also wearing a distinctly unmonarchical outfit that consisted of low-riding jeans that were kind of showing a little crack and a really short crop top, so his entire midriff is hanging out, and he had all of these elaborate, what seemed to be temporary tattoos, so like the kind that you stick on, um, and he's walking around just like eating ice cream at the mall in jeans and a crop top. It is just like this bizarre scene, and a lot of people started worrying, like, wait, this guy's going to take power soon. Like, what's going to happen to the monarchy, right? Like, it was supposed to be this kind of, you know, figurehead, and some people 
what's really interesting, some people were like, this could potentially be a good thing, right? Like, maybe the monarchy will have less power because people won't, you know, he won't have the traditional, like, respect and reverence. That didn't happen. The reverence part kind of went away. But he came in and immediately started doing a bunch of stuff, like, you know, amassing power. But literally, like, he took control of this, like, an estimated, like, $43 billion of royal assets that, like, for decades were entrusted to this bureau that, like, were supposed to manage the money for the benefit of the Thai people. He just took that for himself and was like, yep, I'm going to do that. He starts building these, like, grand palaces. It's just this kind of bizarre, uh, you know, power that he's trying to kind of build this grandeur. He also arranges for these really powerful parts of the army to report directly to him. He changes the constitution so that, you know, he can do a bunch more stuff. It just, this whole kind of cluster happens. And again, it's this guy who was like just a few years ago, just like walking around, like with his like mistress, just chilling in a crop top. Like it was a a moment where people really just looked at the monarchy and were like, what the hell are we doing? Like, what is happening? Yeah, I'm trying to imagine, like, if I could call myself a worldly co-host, if I was, like, barely ever on the show and, like, took all the show's right. budget. Well, I mean, that is me. what you do. Yeah, you, that's, you, you should see his expense sheet. <laughs> yeah, because of the Lay's Majesty Law, uh, you guys can't criticize me on the show. Right, yeah. Like, again, he mostly just hangs out in Munich, in Germany. Like, he's not even in the country most of the time, but he changed the constitution to where, like, that was okay and it's fine. No, it's it's insane. Um, which is, is why, understandably, you have thousands upon thousands of people uh, protesting against this rule and calling for the reforms that Zach laid out, which is, by the way, we should note, would require a massive wholesale change of Thailand, right? If you're trying to reform the constitution, the monarchy, the, the relationship with, like, policing and all that kind of stuff, like, all of this, uh, or, sorry, military, um, that is, like— a 180 in effect from like how Thailand operates today to what it could be. And I'm sure those are maximalist positions, but even so like sort of any reform within those bounds would be a significant change in the country. And these groups do have all the the right sort of ways in which protests go today. They have a a, a strong social media campaign. They have leaders that are um, being targeted quite intensely, being arrested constantly. Um, They even have a hand signal. So if you've ever seen the Hunger Game movies, they do the three-finger salute. Um, It's not clear that it's like, no one's ever said officially, we have taken this from Hunger Games, but it's from Hunger Games. There also was a very famous speech, incidentally, in in or very significant speech in the protest movement, where one of the protest leaders dressed up like Harry Potter and said that his magic would reform the country, right? The pop culture references uh, seem to run very deep in this movement and actually seem very inspiring, which I think is uh, to the to the people involved in it, which is very interesting. There's a reason for that. I don't want to cut off Alex here, but just like pop in really quickly. It's not an accident that they use a lot of these interesting pop culture references, and that's directly related to the Lay's Majesty Laws, which is they had to get really creative with how to express political dissent without technically running afoul of these laws and getting in trouble. So they use pop culture references that, like, everyone knows what it means. Like, if you put up the three-finger salute, like, yeah, people know, oh, like, that's the anti-authoritarian kind of sign from the Hunger Games. But, like, you can't really technically get in trouble. It's not like you're really, like, on paper insulting the monarchy. So these are, like, really creative ways they've gotten to kind of get around this. Anyway. No, you're just like, oh, I'm a big Hunger Games fan. That's yeah, what I'm just, doing here. I'm not making that, fun of the I king. I love that movie. Yeah. And of course, worldly fans will remember that there was a time when, and, and still to this day, where like Chinese um, dissidents use Winnie the Pooh to describe Xi Jinping. Like this is right. a thing, right? Like you you find a sort of side thing in order to, to get to the main point. Otherwise you get in trouble. But 
all this to say is that uh, the fact that there are all these folks out there like protesting and going after the king, effectively um, going against the 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 Lay's Majesty Law um, shows again how strong um, the, the sentiment is here. I mean, if you're looking for wholesale change of Thailand, um, I guess you shouldn't feel too scared to go out into the streets. That said, it is dangerous, right? People are getting hurt, arrested. Um, there are reports of, of all kinds of, of misdeeds. Um, and it also looks like the authorities are purposely trying to clash with protesters. Um, one, obviously sending folks at night, you know, to, to, to beat up and, and break up certain protests. But that like the protesters at one point moved to a different street to avoid a, a royal motorcade. And it seems like the motorcade purposefully um, went to where the protesters had moved to in order to like cause a scene and there are now these these images that are circulating of like the the the, the queen giving these like oh gosh oh darn looks um, very surprised about what was happening more clashes and this is being used like the the safety protocol uh, or like the fact that she felt unsafe and that there was concern has now led to an emergency um, like decree to you know stop all protests for for security concerns also to stop the coronavirus etc all these other reasons um and people are defying that order so this is not going away anytime so like this is this is very clearly a not only months long and like no matter what the authorities are trying to do it's something that's going to continue and so this is like you, they're gonna this is going to come to a head if it hasn't really already yeah i think it, it's important to understand this as part of a long struggle over what thailand is going to be as a country uh, so it has had, uh, like, like, you know, a useful analogy for me in understanding this has been Turkey, a country that has a, a constitutional and democratic framework, but long had a problem of military involvement in politics. When they didn't like what the elected government was doing, they would launch a coup and then replace it, and then they'd go back to elections uh, and until the military decided they didn't want to be involved in this anymore. Now, Turkey today, we don't think of as being a military dictatorship because it's a different kind of authoritarian state where an elected leader, uh, Erdogan, had has basically uh, neutralized the military and, and uh, sidelined it and taken control over it and now functions as a elected authoritarian. Uh, not that elections are particularly fair or legitimate anymore in Turkey. Uh, but the point is the the tension in Turkish politics between electoralism and military authoritarianism ended up getting resolved, or at least temporarily resolved, in favor of a hybrid model, right, electoral authoritarianism, as opposed to actual parliamentary democracy. Thailand, you've also had a similar struggle uh, between parliamentary democracy and military involvement. And uh, you even had uh, an Erdogan like figure in the making. A lot of the the 2014 coup ended up being something that happened as a result of tension surrounding the the prime minister at the time, who had a lot of populist authoritarian tendencies. There were lots of protests on both sides. You had supporters of democracy on both sides of the fences in terms of the protests. They were called the red shirts and the yellow shirts back then. Uh, it mixed in with supporters of authoritarian rule and monarchs uh, on both sides. And so this this the standoff, which centered around an election that year, ended with a military coup. But now you have a sort of consolidation of the pro-democracy side on the one hand, and then the authoritarian supporters of, of both traditional monarchical privilege and the military backing the current government. So it's a real clash and, and a more direct and clear-cut one almost than the one you had in the past, certainly than in 2014, between two visions of Thailand, between uh, a, a constitutional democracy and the 
trending towards a hybrid authoritarian monarchy, military dictatorship that you had um, since the coup in 2014. So it's really a, a fundamental existential struggle over what the country can and should be. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, Turkey's an interesting kind of comparison there, but I, I think, you know, there's a much closer um, kind of comparison. There's actually a kind of a group of countries in this whole region that are very similar in terms of this kind of trajectory of moving, you know, away from from democratic institutions and, you know, more towards authoritarian and often military, you know, militarily-based dictatorship. Um, you have, you know, Myanmar, you have Cambodia, you have the Philippines and Thailand kind of all together um, who share a lot of, not all of the same characteristics, but a lot of the same kind of, you know, somewhat control in ver to varying degrees of the media. You have, you know, leaders who uh, have basically gotten used to the control that they have uh, in a lot of them military dictatorships or very strong use of force. Um, and kind of this kind of group together are all heading in the same kind of trend away from democracy, away from human rights, towards much more dictatorial authoritarian. And what they all tend to have in common in particular is that they are super duper close to China. Uh, they have very close relations to China. And China is, uh, you may, <laughs> we may have mentioned this a few times, um, pretty authoritarian and not super concerned with human rights. And so they have this pretty strong backer who's not only, you know, trying to export its kind of authoritarian model, um, but also does things like, you know, backing up these governments and selling them arms that the West often won't um, and not criticizing them for human rights violations. And so you have this kind of broader trend in the region that is really, really concerning and that, you know, in a lot of ways points to China as being one of the factors that's helping, if not drive this, and at least support this kind of move towards authoritarianism more broadly. So it's really concerning. And it's not just like a, you know, of course, the Thailand, you know, case is specific. There are, you know, uh, details and, and factors at play specific to the country. But they also share this kind of broader characteristics in the region that a, a lot of, you know, watchers of the region are really concerned about. And obviously, a lot of people who live there are equally concerned about. Yeah, I guess it's easier for China to deal with a neighboring country if its leader is as authoritarian as it, as it is, as opposed to a democratic right. leader, because then you can just kind of get stuff done, and that's what it wants to do with its Belt and Road, et cetera. But I do think, I, I kind of want to tie all this in, because it, I think it's important to note, like, whether it's, you know, you're in Nigeria and you're fighting police corruption and, and violence, or you're in Thailand and you're trying to change your system of government— if there and this, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but if there is a, a commonality, it is that regardless of where you are, regardless of who you are, you want a sense of dignity and purpose and good governance, and to believe that when you go out and live your life, that you're going to be rewarded for the work you do, that you will be safe when you, you know, do what you do, um, and that you know the the institutions that are supposed to be working for you work for you and aren't working yeah. against you. Uh, and so I think this is, if, if it's not a universal truth, it is one that I think we're seeing more and more that people are willing to speak up and risk their own, you know, and risk danger in order to speak up for these values and and for these kinds of these better futures that they want. Um, and I think it's important, you know, Nigeria and Thailand don't really get too much coverage, but they should, and they are part of a broader trend that we're seeing of. Um, you know, even some people in, in the parts of the world we don't think about as often uh, as we should um, are taking matters into their own hands and doing what they think is right for their own lives. And it's an important thing that we should all be applauding. 
I want to leave it there on that uncharacteristically positive note. I want to thank our producer, Jackson Bierfeld, for all of his hard work. Uh, and I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. We will talk to you all next week. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.